0: Welcome back to another podcast episode of the Reframe series. And today we are going to be introducing you to Anjali Sharin, who is a Pakistani-American licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in trauma recovery, resilience building, and cultivating joy. She has over 16 years of practice working with immigrant South Asian, Middle Eastern, Muslim, and LGBTQI populations. Sharon received her bachelor's in sociology and anthropology from Mary Washington University and her master's from CIIS. She has trained and mentored with leading figures in trauma recovery and energy psychology, including Richard Strazi Heckler, Stacey Haynes, and Vienna Stibal. In addition to awards for academic excellence and community service, Sharon received the 2007 Emerging Leader Award from the E-Woman Network and has been featured in O Magazine as a finalist for the O Magazine White House Leadership Project. Her new book is Joyous Resilience, A Path to... Individual healing and collective thriving in an inequitable world. I am just so excited to have you here today. I loved reading your book, and I just am so excited to be able to share this with our audience. because I think, I think you're amazing. So, just thank you so much for being here. And I, I want to get us started with. The first question for you, the book that you've written has been so thought provoking for me. It really focuses on helping to bring more self-awareness and understanding. So I I wanted to really understand how did you develop the concept and what influenced your goals for this endeavor?
1: Well, first, just thank you for having me on. And like we were talking about just before we got on, it is such a pleasure to meet a reader who engaged with the book and like really found it useful. And then I also really love, I and mean, I love that it's for the Rethink AC podcast because the book is so much about rethinking, right, like what is mental health, what is wellness, and then I think specifically for the viewers of, of this, like what does it mean in a way to be South Asian, all the different versions of South Asian, it could be all the versions of Desi, and how does that intersect with how are we well, right, and what does it mean to be joyous and resilient, so anyway, I'm really excited to be here, and then, gosh, so what drew me, I mean, I, I guess I in some ways the best way is like what draws you is what you need yourself right you probably heard that saying we we like teach what we most need to learn and I mean this Joyce Resilience the book I always demystify especially as, as like a therapist to say just because I wrote a book on joyous Resilience or just because all of that you know stuff that you just said about the bio does not mean that one has reached some kind of apex the point of the book and my work is really to go this is a constant learning and a constant evolution around what is it to be resilient. And then I think this idea of it's important Like, like talk about joy, like especially I think, I mean, I'm from Pakistan, right? So so I think I find it kind of revolutionary in a way for a Pakistani woman to be saying, and I'm also joyous and I'm Pakistani in the world we live in, because that's a facet that I think sometimes isn't talked about or seen. And especially in the past couple of decades of living in America, you know, I, I came over, I think a few years before 9-11. Certainly Pakistan joy Pakistani woman joy did not really go together. So just that is its own act of, you know, revolution or defiance or in a, in a healthy way like Really, to go. All kinds of things exist within us. And, and this part of my life is important. It's part of our lives as people is important. How do we feed that? To back up, the book comes out of, I mean, I feel very lucky and privileged that, you know, for, like, for many different reasons, in a very early age, like in my early 20s, to understand that just the process of immigration from Pakistan to America and coming over solo. So my family still lives there, you know, and like all that it is to be 20 anyway, without any of that. But then to be in your early 20s and you're navigating college in a new culture, relationships, being free for the first time, which I think anyone in South Asian diaspora coming over from those countries understands when you leave your parents' home or the cultural home, they're like the like freedom that comes. Certainly I grew up in a much more restricted society. How to navigate all that, really meant that there was a lot of emotional upheaval that was happening. And it looked for me like, um, I wouldn't have called it this, but in hindsight, right, it looked for me like anxiety. It looked for me like a lot of like relational anger or irritation, actually, which isn't always true. I think especially for women, anger can sometimes be pretty suppressed. So I came the opposite route. It was pretty out there. And it meant that relationally, I was getting into conflict, not able to sustain. But mostly, it was just a big up and down, emotional up and down. And no idea what was going on. And certainly I had not heard growing up, right? Like, have you thought about there? That is such a rare thing back then. I think a little bit more okay now in like Pakistan. But here, thankfully, someone nudged me. Actually, I'm co worker, which was, you know, it's kind of like it can come from anywhere. Nudged me to go, have you considered this? And so getting over that taboo, because I was like, what? Me? I don't need this. What is this thing? Again, I think that that's changing definitely out here. And definitely if you're living on the coast, if you're listening to this in like America. But I would say culturally broadly, though, still and generationally, still a taboo. But thank goodness for that, Arpita, because what it meant was that pretty early through individual therapy, through group therapy, was actually very useful Through watching people of different ages and different races and different cultures and backgrounds grapple with the same issue of why are we feeling what we're feeling? How do I even know what I'm feeling? oh my gosh, my body actually gives me clues about that and I could listen to that. I mean, that was mind-blowing, right? Otherwise, all I knew was my tummy hurts, I feel really down, gosh, I'm getting a headache, I don't wanna go to work, I love it when you're nice to me, I hate it when you're not, I don't know what to do about it. So it just gave me language for my sensations and my emotions, that was huge. And then therapy really helped me to translate those into needs, that actually there was needs buried in it. Things I needed to say yes to, things I need to say no to again no I think culturally pretty difficult word Um, you know I still struggle with I remember asking my mom like what are boundaries in Urdu like how do you say that you know Um, (laughs) I I still am like the word seems so strong I'm like that's not it's not a wall it's not a divar it's not you know I mean it's a way of interacting but but it's not actually or how do you say privacy Privacy instead of secrecy, you know, in Urdu. So learning about this need, something called boundaries, something called limits. And then, of course, the third part, right? How do I begin to do that relationally? How do I begin to actually exercise that? First with people, maybe a little bit lighter. The most difficult one is always with family, getting over and working through guilt or shaming, which I know can happen in our culture sometimes. You know, I mean, it's just part of like, it seems like it's been mixed in with love, differentiating between love and guilting and shaming and like love and obligation, as opposed to like a genuine ethic of this is from my heart versus because I think I have to, otherwise you won't love me and you're going to ostracize me. All of these things, I see you nodding. I mean, I think these are just part of the diaspora. They're also, I just want to say, part of many different cultures, but we're focusing here on South Asian. And they see diaspora wide. So sensations, feelings, articulation into needs, having needs actually into boundaries and limit setting and yeses in the world. I mean, that was hugely empowering. And I think early on watching other people go through that and then seeing joy return that the joy, the aliveness, the happiness, the loving that came from, I'm actually free. I feel the voices inside my head are calmer. I'm not criticizing and judging myself in the way that I've inherited. I'm also more open to other people's limits. I am better able to love in a way that's actually going, I want the best for you, you know? And like, wanna figure out how we compromise without necessarily having to sacrifice. Another taboo thing for anybody who's hearing, right? Like, oh my gosh, isn't love sacrifice. What's the difference between compromise and sacrifice? So. That just meant that I felt like there was no work in the world that I wanted to do more than this, to start to engage with groups, individual therapy. That's kind of the mix that I do, individual therapy groups, trainings, to really go, let's start to free ourselves. And so the book emerged from that. And then the model, we can talk more about that. The model is based on one that I was taught pretty early. And I, you know, I want to hear more from you. I can come back and tell people about that model. But the model really helped break down for me the voices in our head or the voices in relationships that basically keep us stuck. And then over the past 17 years of personal therapy and with clients, the book came out of that, going, "Oh, actually, there's an alternate model. There's a the voices in our head that are alternate that we can be with ourselves or with each other that are the way that we thrive, actually, you know." And so breaking this idea of thriving is grit can happen right muscle over things be strong but don't really feel anything or it's just innate you're just born resilient and sure you can have traits that your temperament you know definitely helps you have things have you bounce back faster but this is more a process it's a way that we can be with ourselves and i hope from this actually communally too right that we go instead of criticizing and neglecting basically we'll get into that in a a moment when we're feeling vulnerable instead of criticizing and neglecting we actually move into nurturance boundary setting and protection soulfulness creativity right we support ourselves in thriving instead of these things that we've learned to survive that break us down so that's a big mouthful of like how (laughs) some of where it came from
0: yeah, everything you've shared and said so far, I can definitely relate to and recognize those aspects in my own journey. It's so nice to to meet someone like you who has gone through so much healing and really and helps transform other people's lives as well through, through the tools and techniques that you've learned. So um, yes, I'm very excited to kind of get into the questions of the way that you approach your work from a heart centered place rather than just a thought centered place. When I was reading it, what struck me was really the way that the book was structured, which, which focused on providing some very useful frameworks in terms of the, the cycles that create struggle within us, as well as the, the tools and techniques that we can use to build resilience. And what appealed to me most was that you really went very deeply into each of these aspects and would provide case studies of what that actually looked like. Afterwards, we would have exercises that we could use to actually approach that for ourselves. And I felt very called in (laughs) and reading some of those sections because they felt so personal in some ways because I could relate to the struggles of the individuals that you were talking about. And I think many of us can because there are aspects of our lives where we are all struggling and we don't necessarily know Whether it's imposter syndrome or whether it's dealing with being a caregiver for someone, how we're supposed to approach the world. So when I read those things, I definitely wondered to myself, how did you even approach writing this and what were some of the challenges that you ran into and how did you approach structuring this book to be able to cover such a difficult topic of developing resilience when dealing with an unequal world.
1: Yeah, and you make go back to like I'm like, how did I? <laughs> Sometimes when it's done, <laughs> <I> what? <worse? laughs> oh god, this came out. <laughs> Let me see. I, I guess if I again pull back, one thing I want to just reflect back to you. I I already feel. I mean, I wrote the book first thing I kept in mind was like this idea of, I know there are not that many books. I'm a huge reader. I'm a big book nerd, you know? And so and then of course self-help psych and all the trainings, but I knew, especially like watching with my clients, like definitely I have a pretty diverse roster. I've always wanted that, that when I recommend books in self-help and psych, and they're really good books, I know that it's really hard because the examples, the stories generally tend to be white and do not tend to have complex layers around just, you know, race, class, gender, ability, sexual orientation, all these things, all these multiple layers that majority of the people that I'm working with are grappling with and that I myself have grappled with. So it's beautiful to watch your face light up and have you say, I see myself or, you know, when I was describing some of those issues, you know, South Asians deal with or Desi community deals with and watching you nod, it's affirming for me too. And that was one part of the book is that it's healing. Like I think your podcast is healing just to look at each other and go me too me too and this thing and this thing and I mean it's both heartbreaking and healing right because it's also like oh I wish I wish not I wish not you I wish you did not know these things but but we need to be able to see our to be able to be like seen and reflected in the stories and I think especially if we're going to do mental health work and stuff that's one of the big gaps so it's beautiful to see that and that was one of the things that I was channeling I was thinking about the book is like in these examples, in everything that I write, how do I make it more complex than just, you know, this kind of two dimensional character who lives a particular life from Hollywood, I guess, or just general kind of whiteness that most people don't occupy, even if you're white, may you don't actually occupy, right? Like, how do we make these things complex? And And so that came to the second part of the narrative, which you saw in the book, is for every case example, I work really diligently to say, and that's a big piece of this, is in general therapy, when you go to therapy, when you're doing self-help, general narrative, what you're going to hear is the things that you're dealing with probably are about what's happened to you in your life and then going back a bit to your family. Well, what can be really hard there, and actually is a huge disservice, is that none of us exist in this vacuum of, like our, our families and ourselves don't exist in a vacuum. They exist inside of the institutions, the systems, the culture, the history, the landscape, right? Like that actually have affected us. So that was very important to me that for every example, where say, someone is struggling with their people pleaser or they're overgiving, but then They also happen to be a caretaker that we don't just go, oh, you're a caretaker, you should take better care of yourself, you know? And like, don't uh, basically have better boundaries and do better, it's all on you, you know, to, I don't know, get a a babysitter, get some help, you know, don't like have, have like limits on how much, and all that stuff could be useful. But what's very painful is, especially in this country, if you happen to be a caregiver, do you even have health insurance? What does your health insurance even cover? Is there anybody that you could actually bring into the home help with the caregiving how do we tell you have better boundaries if you don't actually honor and acknowledge what resources do you have or how under-resourced you are from our terrible terrible healthcare system and then you know larger than that yeah, the, the, the institution of healthcare in the larger system right that basically goes capitalism not going to take care of you and certainly if you're black or brown or lgbtq or disabled like even less right so it was very important to me Kind of to go. Yes, we're going to talk about resilience, but we're going to talk about it in the realm of the all the different aspects that make it very hard to be resilient. And then, yes, we're going to look at where do we have power. Intrapersonal power is looking at what are we doing internally in that. Because if the healthcare system and the political system and capitalism is like letting me down, my family down, but then do I? So here's the model for people who are listening. The thing that's gonna cause suffering is then when I am feeling anxiety and depression, and of course, I'm just like overwhelmed and stressed and my body hurts, am I then criticizing myself? So what happens if a voice we've inherited that then goes, well, other people are much more resilient. They're doing their job and they don't have this problem. And so what's wrong with you? Which again, actually breaks me down further. Or it's okay, it's so overwhelming that I do the other voice, which is neglect. So then maybe I just go, oh my God, I just want to check out. And who doesn't? These just all these things are going on. But I, I start to like check out from my feelings and sensations. So I scroll on social media and I'm doing the Netflix and I'm doing the food. That's not so good for me or substances or addictions or people pleasing as in I'm going to tell the world. And this one is a big one in our cultures. I think I've been taught when I have those feelings, especially also if I happen to be in terms of gender, right? Like female, then I have to put a smiley face on this thing. I'm going to go, I'm fine. How can I take care of you? Nothing going on, suppress, suppress my irritation, my anxiety, my needs, my anger. So I'll neglect myself through people pleasing, because I've been taught that's good, through getting, you know, losing myself in things, also through being busy. I mean, of course, again, depending on gender, or just different roles that we play, caretaker, of course, there's so many things I could be busy but the world is on fire, forget about me. So we've been taught this. And we go around in this because the more I do the neglect, the worse I feel. Short term, I might feel okay, but this thing isn't going anywhere. I still need those boundaries. I'm still depressed. Then I get to criticize myself more and make myself feel worse about how I'm showing up and what's wrong with me. And also, society isn't helping. Society is going, aren't we all supposed to have a million followers on Instagram and be doing 50 different things in our lives and magically working and also having babies and raising them and, you know, taking vacations and all this stuff and it's not real. So then I, it, it keeps on feeding this cycle of distress. And so the book is really talking about this thing is real. The good news about it is actually it stops the moment you even step back and realize it's not you. It's a way of responding to when you are in distress. And then the circle of resilience is the journey of building. The opposite of neglect is a nurturer. So, if neglect goes, look away. Nurture goes. This come back in. How am I feeling? I do have feelings, and I am here with myself. or I accept myself. Building that capacity. I want to be kind to myself. I think if we even shifted some of our cultural stuff in a culture of kindness, and I think that we are our kind people. There's a lot of love behind. All of this, you know, let me take care of you. How can I do this for you? Probably in our cultural shape, the biggest shift shift is like, let me take care of you. <laughs> How can I take care of you? Or oh, Arpita, take care of yourself. Like, it's okay, you take care of yourself. That would probably be a big cultural into intellect like nurturance, like real nurturance. Opposite of the critic is the protector. So that's the part I talked about where the protector goes, you deserve to be spoken to with respect. And we can find cultural ways. Like I also don't really subscribe to like boundaries of the same across cultures for everybody. But the protector is really saying, hey, like in this situation for you and inside of your, the way that you hold it culturally, you still do get to have limits. You still do get to be asked, what does your body need? What does your heart need? Yes, maybe you have a, a lot of communal values. I think that's really beautiful. But even in community, if we are not going Are you okay are you giving too much like are you squandering all of your energy and time and finances then you're basically going to come back into suffering so how do we begin to set and encourage limits boundaries needs yeses no's? and i think especially as the next generations come along i think we have more power to do this as we raise our children so that's the antidote to the before i even get to the soul self And that resilient self, imagine whoever's listening, if your heart was even just met with when you're suffering, you're having a hard time with anything, nurturance and protection versus the neglect and the criticism. Wouldn't you start to feel like, I feel a bit better. Maybe I can do this thing. Gosh, like there is some hope after all. I have some power or agency. I feel more at home or safe in my body, even if this world is... Doing its thing, systems aren't changing yet, but I feel more at home. That is where the vulnerable self becomes the resilient self because of how you've cared for. And then the soul self I talk about in the book is just how do we tap into something much larger than ourselves, which I think also we have a lot of resources or spirituality, music, creativity. So, activism, like when you're cared for internally in this way, it is from there that we can actually start to engage within shape shift those systems but that's the kind of cycle that we're talking about in the book and I think and that was kind of thinking behind how do I walk people through a path that they can follow for themselves and I'm glad to hear that the book does feel to you like that that it is something you can do with your therapist well, with your coaches but you really could just pick up this book and start to walk yourself through yourself as well.
0: Yeah um, okay. so what I what I really loved and in- all of these approaches that you took in writing and especially in thinking about not just from the the individual the situation is something that i've gotten myself into you you didn't do that you really took a step back and um place that emphasis on i am an individual living within society and as someone who does data analysis for a living who focused on really trying to look at demographic data and really understand where social inequities are coming from. I just loved that aspect of your book, especially around things like caregiving or and just the the impact external factors might be influencing internalized racism or internalized misogyny within ourselves and might be impacting the critical voice that we're hearing and so being able to see those things written and and listen to them because I listened to the audio version, which is really good. Yes. <laughs> I have both. I have both. So I wonder like how, what informs the kinds of studies that you looked at and what what kind of influenced your research around those aspects of your work? Because I just, I really appreciated it. And in our work, we've been looking at something called solidarity economics and underlying that is this recognition of the mutuality that exists within our society and really the need to uplift care workers and those those who do work that is so fundamental to shaping our economy but often goes under undervalued and unrecognized. It's
1: cool to hear because you you kind of sit on the opposite side of the spectrum. So much of my work really is like with individuals, right? It's kind of like in the day-to-day watching through experience. So it is cool to have someone who is much more in the stats and the research and all of that to value like what, what came out of it. I think for me, um, the thing is, I see it day to day, right? And I live it and we see it around us. And so, and also it's kind of more my nature to really look at that and go, I mean, the proof is in the pudding, but the proof is in the body, it's in the society, but it was actually a good muscle for me to exercise in a way for the sake of the book. Cause I know there's all different kinds of readers. And also because I think it is actually important to back it up and go, yeah, this is not just hearsay. This is not just me saying oh wow you know one person that i sat with had this experience so must be society actually thanks to people like you thanks to all of these researchers there's a huge body of knowledge that's out there that is tracking this thing which again devastating to read i think there's like a section in the book chapter five right? Where i go through all the stats and i go this is the level of violence against certain bodies that's happening not that we don't know it because we see it and i think the past few years again if you're in the states i think in some ways useful for the people who have been able to through privilege put blinders on to see this is a level of violence day to day against black bodies and brown bodies trans bodies all of that so it was a good muscle though to go for every single thing i'm talking about let me let me go and now give thanks to and it's all you know tracked in the book and if you are into that you can look in the bibliography to see who's done research on yes where is this coming from and also like what level is this happening? So just in the caregiving chapter, right? All of that information, there's like data on what happens to the people, generally again, women, who stay at home to provide caregiving and the sheer drop in income, you know, like just like financial security. So, and then like how that then translates into their own old age and what's available to them. And like, again, how disparate it is based on your race, right, no surprise really anybody, but, there is there is something about watching the numbers and go, oh my God, it's also systematic because it's about white supremacy and institutionalized racism, which over the years meant that certain populations just got to have less and then got to pass on less and continue to. So I think biggest takeaway I'll say is for anybody who's not, a, who's not like a stats nerd or whatever, and I did my best to make it very relatable, you know, because I wanted to just kind of give oomph for the story in a way to go, yeah, it's all right here. And it's important that we know, because I'm going to tie to the thing that you said about in solidarity economy, right? I think at the end of the book, I talk about, okay, and all of this individual work, but obviously, if we're noticing now, we're waking up to how much larger systems, institutions are affecting us, may... Some of this work we're doing, give us a resilience to start to engage with that bigger thing, because if we don't, this thing is poisoning, I'm literally poisoning in terms of climate change, poisoning our waters, it's poisoning our bodies, it's poisoning our ability to thrive and it's not going anywhere. So I think that was also really useful to shift it to these stats, prove that something bigger is happening and may it get us excited about there's, People out there doing work through movements to shift this thing. And I give a lot of suggestions at the end just to go, and here's where we could begin to just look at engage. Again, things you don't talk about in like traditional therapy. But honestly, these days I would say, yes, people come in and we, and myself, I talk about, you know, individual things in my life with having my family and this thing and that thing. But I also find over the past number of years, yeah. And I'm also talking about, the political climate and climate change. And I'm worried about the rise of fascism and like, how is it going to affect me? And oh my God, healthcare and the pandemic. And it's not possible, I think more and more, despite our privileges to keep excluding the fact that we have to pay attention to systems because they're really affecting us. And there's no bubble that can keep that out. So let's take care of ourselves so that we can start to take care of the stuff that's going on in the world.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I I definitely related to those pieces in both like the the stats and you know like the work part of me but also just the personal piece because my parents were, were caregivers for my brother. And I definitely could see like the the impact that that had on our lives and the the opportunities for being able to grow professionally as well as Personally, and how that really impacted, I think, a large piece of our lives for decades. And I just really value what you did in there. Thank you for sharing. Um,
1: like your own personal experience, because, <laughs> yeah, you know, through really experience, right? And how now different would it have been if, like, just different things swooped in to, to hold all of you? Like, even just not having to worry, I mean, you all, how many things could catch us that don't, because the society is not having a nurture. Or a protector in
0: place. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I love how you talk about how change does not come from insight alone. It requires a felt, embodied experience, and how you develop the book as a series of exercises in addition to the case study approach. So. I, I know you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'd love to know like even about your process for developing the exercises that you used or just your your thought process and and developing this.
1: That's a great question. Thank you. I mean, I, yeah, I just love the parts of the book that you're pulling out. So that aspect of the book, right, this idea of like learning doesn't happen top down, the majority of learning, I think, is considered to be top down. Right. Like, I will hear about it or read about it, and then I'll know it. But if you think about things like riding a bike, we didn't, we didn't read a manual riding a bike, we had to get on it and do it and be helping it, and then the body learned, right? So majority of the things that we learn there from the bottom, uh, it's helpful. It's helpful to have the book. It's helpful to have the concepts. But then it's really about, can you feel it? Can you sense it? And then can you practice it and so that comes from my background in somatic therapy so somatic therapy really is a therapy that says yes of course we have to talk and that's a part of it but we need to be able to have access to knowing the language of our sensations and what they're informing of us the language of our emotions and then let's take big ideas like for example the idea of boundaries right so you and i can talk about boundary and i can say to my clients like it would be good if you had a boundary, you know, or like, oh, they, you know, take care of yourself and like, make sure that you say yes and no. But for most of us, if in my body what i have practiced, right, when I was little and I said, no, I don't want to do it. And someone either went smack or they looked at me and frowned or said, we don't do that. What I learned my body probably was. Pull in, full end, in quiet or everything's fine. That's a somatic response. And just because someone says to me, like, don't do that now, 10 years, 20 years have gone by, doesn't mean that I'll be able to because I heard it. So in session, what that would look like, or in the book, we break it down into, as you saw, right, like, have the learning, but now let's break it down into maybe what does no feel like in your body? What is the gesture of no? What would it be like to bring in an imaginal figure that tells you about actually being held or hearing the words that actually soothe the, the things that you've never heard like you're worthwhile it's okay I love you I'm here for you what are the gestures that model that let me put a hand on my body or with no let me actually practice a bunch of no's it may sound strange if if you're new to this whoever's listening but truly like I started a session with clients where it's like you don't know no is that, that's weird we're not doing this all of this stuff it's very scary. And then you give people a chance in a room to do like 10 pushaways and no's and people start to be like, okay, it's more normalized, even kind of exhilarating, you know, give them a few weeks or a month and it's like, great, like, I feel more energy. And that translates into and then we practice and go, let's practice. Let's practice trying to say no, thank you or actually I'd rather stay home tonight or wow, you know, thanks for asking, I'll get back to you or like what all these normal things in that but we were trained out of that we're trained into i have to check my email all the time because oh my god someone's waiting right so the somatic practice of like i'm going to put that down and i'm going to tolerate the sensations of unease that come up and then i'm going to give it a few hours all of that is teaching you to the body how to change behavior so it's a long way of saying somatic therapy and then also i'm hypnotherapy so i'm also hypnotherapist which means work a lot in the imaginal realm work a lot in the subconscious realm which is where a lot of this stuff sits. Like consciously, most of us say, of course, mm-hmm. of course we should nurture ourselves. Of course I should be kind. That's all you're conscious. Subconsciously, there might be these beliefs of, yeah, but, but you know, but not if you're being lazy or you know, we are, but I think there's like some limits on that. Or if you're too kind to yourself, you're going to spoil yourself. All the stuff that we took in, family, society, all of that. So the book, guides you through. And the book comes with, by the way, for anybody who's listening, and maybe I can send you a link. I think, Arpita, you have it. Everybody will receive a link to nine guided meditations. Those are hypnotherapy meditations. They're free. They go along with the book, but you can also listen to them all by themselves. And they help basically help you through hypnotherapy, get in touch with the nurturer, the protector, and build these aspects of yourself. So it came from somatic therapy, hypnotherapy, and then, of course, you know, 18 years of doing group work, individual sessions and going, what are the questions and the practices that help people build this? It also comes from a year-long course that I teach and that people are interested in, they can, you know, go on the website and see. It's a lot of fun because we do it all together as a group, all these exercises, but again, everything in the book is easily doable on your own.
0: I'd love to also link that in the description for, for folks who are listening or watching to this. So you can check that out if you're interested. Yeah. So I think you talked about this a little bit already. So you talk about the the cycle of suffering. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you developed this concept of the cycle of suffering or where it comes from? And then the same with the the circle of resilience. Yeah. I mean I think just, yes, just jog people. Like I think I said that earlier. So cycle
1: of suffering, like the version of it I was first introduced to is something called the drama triangle. And it comes from Stan Carpenter, who was a Psychologist, I believe, who's in this kind of like psych- the, 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 the field of, of self help and and psychology, and so that was this idea of there's these three roles and people interact in them, whether they're in relationship or with themselves. Now he calls it the victim, and some 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 other terms for the I what I felt over time was calling it the victim. I think, I mean, it can be useful. People definitely can go into victim posture. It's just happening to me. But I think it was important to me to shift that to the vulnerable self and in the way that I shared in the book because of what I'm saying, right? Like I think using the word victim when we're talking about things like, you know, institutionalized racism and how it affects people felt really inappropriate. I think it also really missed it's, it's not what he was trying to do, but I was attempting to really broaden this idea and go, no, actually it's our vulnerable self. It's this part of us that is feeling helpless for a reason because of how it's being treated. And so I wanted to really highlight mm-hmm. that. So I riffed off of that and then broke it down into this version of neglect and, and like blaming yourself, putting yourself down. And the circle of resilience, I mean, I don't know of, I'm sure there are, of course there's like lots of different teachings on, you know, self-compassion or boundary setting. Um, I like models. Like my, my brain really works this way to really to like look at a model and go, okay, but how would you teach something different? And watching my own journey over the years, watching the clients, developing the groups and realizing like, oh, there are counter shapes. Like when I talk to a client about how they're neglecting themselves, of course, what I'm really assessing for is, are they able to nurture themselves? When I looked back at my life, I wasn't steeped in anger and criticism, like I described to you all, right? And compassion, I mean, I hadn't thought about it. and didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, love yourself, be kind to yourself. I'd never heard of that stuff. But those were the skills. Like, if I broke them down, I realized those are the major skills I learned early on that carry me through now. What does it mean to nurture myself in various different aspects? And how do I begin to protect myself? And like, that was missing. It was missing for me culturally. And it was missing for me internally and in the family. And they were the counter rules to this model. And then the soul self, I think, really came from, it wasn't enough. I talk about this in the book, like nurture is very important, protector is very important. There are things that we're grappling with, I think, especially these days that are bigger than our personal lives. And I think I, at least I've seen the clients as well, need something bigger to hold that pain and that distress. When I feel the anxiety about our world, Sometimes even just grief, like there's a grief that's so profound, losses in our lives, sadnesses, that yes, my nurturer is kind to me. And yes, my protector can go, okay, let's make space. But I need to lean into nature. I need to lean into maybe even a circle of people who've had grief. I need to lean into movements where I'm like, someone is working towards this and I can be a part of that because it's too big for me to do it myself. So the soul self came out of going, I think something bigger is needed to go beyond the cycle of suffering which I had not seen before and then the last piece I'll say is you know joy like no one talked to me about joy in the 20 plus years now of doing my own personal therapy like I think it was assumed you know you do your work on trauma and then you'll feel better and then you're good to go and I realized like about eight nine years in like yes I feel much better I feel peace I'm also focused mostly on work like there's something that's like missing there's like a blahness in life there's something that's not being expressed and so that came out of a lot of personal investigation and then with clients and groups going what would happen if we asked early on in our healing work or throughout our lives what brings you joy how can we do this more enjoyably how can we do this life with more awe and delight and pleasure how can we make that less taboo why has that become taboo Especially in activist circles i found where then have clients coming out of activists or you know in the suffering of this world and then hearing it's not okay to talk about joy or pleasure and it's like where are we going to get the strength from the resilience from if we're not talking about this so that piece of the model really came from the past decade of going i'm going to engage with this and i gotta tell you i mean all of it has helped but that that has really helped keep things still sweet it's kept still feeling like there's a reason to be alive in this hard world and there's ways that we know how to make ourselves feel better that are not in a book that are not just from some scientist person said they're they're in our culture actually in our bodies they're in music and singing and like the wisdom of being with each other and let's bring that forward so that's where it came from
0: i'm just so grateful that you expressed that because um I think even in our own culture, I don't necessarily know if if this idea of joy for the sake of joy or, or just having this. I think we do have networks, but oftentimes, even within immigrant communities in the U.S., when when you come here and you feel very isolated and alone, This concept of having to develop these types of circles of resiliency or these these soul communities that it's not it's not readily obvious. And you breaking down these pieces is so helpful and provide so much structure in such a thoughtful way that I think anyone engaging with this will really appreciate appreciate. The the way that you you have really thought about building resiliency and and provide useful tools that allow them to also build those same things for themselves.
1: That's lovely. Uh, So yeah, I'll just I'll end with them. One of the nicest compliments I received recently from a reader was just saying like they they like read the book and. It actually made them explore laughing more, which was a new thing for them. Like, it's such a, you know, they thought it was going to be like very serious and all this stuff. And they are a pretty serious person. And they're doing very deep work and activist work and all this stuff. But they realized that they're not laughing. Like, they need laughter back. And so they began to do humorous things and like funny things and play with that part. And that delighted me. So, because again, it just opens up this idea of what is wellness, what helps us. Maybe it will be some of the stuff we've talked about, or maybe the book will encourage you
0: to, and we need that. Yeah, I definitely feel that. And for for our viewers and listeners, I just want to wanna give this last moment to Anjali to really share. How can you how can we get in touch with you? And where can we buy your book? book. Yes, I mean, I hope you're inspired, too. So the book you can find really everywhere that you
1: buy books generally online. I definitely have a preference and a love for indie bookstores. So If you have a favorite one, just go to them. They might already have it or, you know, ask them. But otherwise, you can buy it online anywhere. And I think they'll put up a link. Probably. I think we, we have that where you can purchase And then in terms of contacting me, either for like groups or trainings, all of that, one, I love to hear from you. I'm on Instagram. I think there might be a a link there. Feel free to just, you know, if you're reading the book, tag me. I love to hear from readers. Otherwise, when you go to the website, especially when you get those nine guided meditations, automatically you'll begin to get a resilience newsletter if you want that. And that's where you hear the news about sessions with me, trainings. And if you want to do a deep dive on this book, then hopefully next year there will be kind of a group where we come together and do this work so those are the places to find me and i would love to hear from readers thank
0: you, thank you thank you so much for coming on and for for anyone listening please do get the book and contact her because i think she's amazing also please like subscribe and comment on the podcast so we can continue to grow our community and make this world a more yes. loving. Thank place. you for this
1: gift, Arpita, of the work that you're doing on this podcast. It's so important to like rethink, to rethink the-